This presentation is from Design Research 2020, Day 1. Thanks. Hey, Jack. Hey. Welcome. Thanks hey. for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. A pleasure. I'm going to hand over the, to you. Um, away you go. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal, Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Um, I'm sorry that I can't be with you all in um, person. Um, I hope you say hi on LinkedIn or Twitter or something like that, because so, I'd really love to connect you if what I'm saying has res resonance, or if you just want to say hello. Um, my name's Jack Swetzler, and um, I'm a designer and researcher, and I've done quite a lot of work on projects supporting vulnerable people and people with lived experience for both government and not-for-profit clients. And I consult as an independent practitioner at Sticky Design Studio, and I also run two communities of practice, Social Design Sydney and the Systems Change Salon. So my talk today is called The Voices of Lived Experience, Design Research with Vulnerable People. And I will begin with a few provocations, and then I will move into six considerations for design research with vulnerable people. And I hope you find this valuable. All right. Okay, bear with me. All right. The focus of design practice is changing from visual designers designing posters to industrial designers designing toasters to interaction and service designers designing digital tools and on and offline services to strategic organization and other complexity loving designers solving issues for, um, within systems environments and for organize within organizations the focus of design practice is evolving and increasingly, design is being utilised to support social, political and environmental change. So let's get clear on what I mean by lived experience and vulnerable people, a vulnerable person. So um, lived experience, what I'm referring to is the experience of people on whom a social health or combinations of issues has had a direct impact and a vulnerable person, a person unable to take care of themselves or who is unable to, to protect themselves against harm or exploitation by reason of age, illness, trauma, or disability, or for any other reason. As design practice increasingly engages with more complex domains, designers power to influence people's experiences and change lives also increase. Designers have power. I'd like to read you this quote. It really resonated with me. It's by Jules Sondergaard and Hansen. Design is an act of power or a potential act of power. That is how design stages people's agency, the structures that impact people's agency and how designed objects themselves seek to perform agential power. Whether aware of it or not, designers bring values and belief systems into the design practice based on their position in the world. And this influences the design in a particular way. Arguing that designers influence their design is not a controversial argument to make, but when design deliberately engages with power, social change and the political condition, it seems increasingly important that designers critically reflect on their agency and position. Human-centred design. So I'm fairly sure everyone in the audience is familiar with human-centred design and it's growing um, it's being recognised as um, a very valuable approach for designing services for vulnerable people. It views people as experts in, in their domains and has empathy at the core. That design practice helps to facilitate empathy is discussed widely. 
But in the context of designing for vulnerable people, what does empathy really mean? And is it really enough? Let's look at what empathy means. Well, the Idea Human Centre Design Toolkit, who focus a lot on empathy, they say that empathy brings deep understanding of the problems and realities of the people we are designing for. Does empathy always lead to deep understanding? Do design methods necessarily lead to deep understanding? Design research done well supports understanding, yes. And please excuse my cynicism here, but can one really build empathy and deep understanding by filling out empathy maps? If I may, in relying on empathy alone, we can fall into a trap of falsely rationalising design decisions and codifying our assumptions. Because empathy is not enough. You can't recognise what you don't know. If you don't know how it feels to sleep rough at night, how can you recognise that feeling? If you are afraid of being assaulted, then how can you actually recognise that fear? The reality is you don't and you can't. We can get close to how it feels, but the more privileged you are, the more likely it is that these realities are very distant to you to understand. Without understanding, we assume. We do not see things as they are, we see things as we are. And that link below is quite interesting. It's got some psychological studies about um, empathy and privilege. Studies have shown that upper-class people having more control over their lives and less need to rely on relationships are less empathic. Privilege can blind us from recognising people's emotions and it affects our ability to have empathy and our ability to truly understand others and their contexts. So the next thing I'd like to raise is when. When do we involve service recipients? Or I don't like the word users, people that we're um, researching with, when do we involve them in the process? Often, usually, design research is commonly done here around the, before the, around for the discovery phase and commonly done here where we validate and refine concepts or interventions. But really, to get the outcomes we, we should get and we can get, we really need to involve people throughout the process. If I was there, I would say, raise your hand if you've seen this, but maybe do that in your house, but I won't know. Um, it's a, this is a well-known framework, the IAP2 Spectrum of Public Participation. And um, it's used a lot for the development of public policy and community consultation to inform that. And it's a spectrum that illustrates the goal for consultation and the impact research has on decisions. And I feel it's useful here when considering participation within, design, within the design process. Sorry, I have not, I'm behind, I'm on the wrong slide. So here we are, sorry. I feel that design research commonly, we sit in the consult um, part of the spectrum. We will listen to and acknowledge concerns and aspirations, but to get the outcomes that we can get and I think we should be getting, we really should be moving into collaborate where we will look to you for advice and innovation in formulating solutions and incorporate your advice and recommendations into the decisions to the maximum extent possible. That's where we should get. We need to stop designing for people and start designing with people. And how might we involve diverse voices of lived experience throughout our processes? How might we ensure we include the voices of lived experience as well as ensuring our stakeholders have both empathy as well as understanding? 
Okay, so eight considerations for conducting research with vulnerable people and including the voices of lived experience. Point one, take a systems view. Life for vulnerable people is usually complex. A system view facilitates understanding. At the start, create a map of the system your user groups are involved with. Include people, policies, services, organisations, places. Keep adding to this map. It will be very useful. Vulnerable people can be hard to recruit for research. A systems view can help understand how to get, how to get those hard to reach voices included. And it can help you find partners and organisations that work with the community to support your research. A systems view will also help you better understand people's context, supporting you to hone your research focus. And it's also really valuable in sense making because it can help you to understand the complexity of someone's life beyond their medical diagnosis or socioeconomic situation. It will help you to understand the different enablers and detractors in their world and identify non-causal relationships between these, helping you to understand and recommend where to intervene. A systems lens will help you, your colleagues, your partners, clients and decision makers to identify where the levers for change may lie so that you can intervene in ways that have impact. I'm a big fan of systems thinking and use it a lot to inform my practice when I'm dealing um, with complexity and some, there's some links there in case you'd like to read more about it. Okay, number two, mind your mental models. Bias is unavoidable. Reflect, make the effort to know yours. Consider the power dynamics of the system you are a part of. They're there. Where does power lie? Reflect on this in relation to your initiatives and its relationship to the larger context. It's really important to consider as well, who is funding this work? Understand your privilege. What hinders your ability to take another's perspective? Consider your personal and cultural assumptions. Again, they're there. And be reflective when sense-making. Always interrogate your assumptions, try and tune into your judgments. And it's really helpful to identify patterns together, work with colleagues during field work, work with um, domain experts and work with people with lived experience to help you make sense of the data. Reflect, reflect, reflect. It's okay to have your own biases as long as you make the effort to know them. Point three. Accessible and appropriate. Be appropriate, enable and scaffold participation. Not all approaches are appropriate for all cohorts. It sounds obvious, but accessibility needs to be front of mind. Firstly, with locations. Ensure the locations you conduct your research are accessible and then ring back and check or go and visit. It's very embarrassing having someone in a wheelchair rock up and you aren't able to get them into the building. Ensure the locations are appropriate and that participants feel comfortable. Some locations are not appropriate for people. Make sure participants feel safe. For example, conducting research with regional Indigenous communities on a family community um, services project, it was not appropriate to do any research in the office. So we worked with the local community YWCA that offered their space for us to work from. Language, always use plain English, obvious, but still. Adaptation of methods. Collaborative design methods need adaptation for trauma, low self-efficacy and psychological safety. Be prepared to modify your ways. Ability is diverse. 
provide flexible ways to gather data. It's a big mistake to assume people are literate or comfortable with reading and writing. Storytelling is a very accessible way to get data. Everyone, everyone can tell a story. Seek advice and support. Get support to shape your research so it's appropriate. Involve others with, with, who understand the cohort. Cultural understanding is so critical. Consider working with others throughout to help you shape and interpret your research. Utilise carers and interpreters to support data gathering. They know the people they work with and they can really be very helpful to support your research process. Point four, be adaptive, be like water, flow, reflect, adapt. Creating trust and a sense of security is critical. This does take time. So you need to fatten up your project plan. Invariably, recruitment and research will take longer than you expect. Try to allow more time than you think you need. Be flexible, work around participants, build in choice. You may need to run research activities in ways and locations you're not used to. Participants may participate in unexpected ways. Go with the flow. Build in choice, enable participants to participate on their terms. I successfully ran some research with people with lived experience of mental health issues remotely using diary studies so that, that they could participate when they wanted. It can be challenging to access some groups. Consider working with advocates to help run research activities for you. On another project with the regional Indigenous community, I designed some activities for the leader of a men's group who included men who'd been incarcerated as I was unable to directly access the cohort. Don't be a purist, get what data you can. Consider what the next best option available is if you can't talk to actual users. Payment, always pay participants. Some will need to bring carers and interpreters Ensure you have budget for that possibility. Wellbeing. Put wellbeing at the heart. This includes your own. Wellbeing is important for everyone, always. Ensure there are supports, support avenues in place for everyone. For researchers, it can be very hard not to be affected by what you hear. Create mechanisms for support for your team. Make sure you debrief after interviews, and it can be really helpful to work in pairs. Ensure your team has access to the support they need when they need it. Before starting, tell participants that they can stop whenever they want if they feel uncomfortable. And during interviews, tune in. Are you being strengthening, strengthening and not triggering? Ask, tune in and ask. Ensure you have supports in place for people. Give participants a contact so that they connect with someone for support afterwards in case they're not, if they're feeling unsettled. Some topics can be quite triggering. Become trauma informed. There are lots of courses you can do to support you to work with people who have experienced trauma. That would be very helpful. Six, partners, not informants. Move from consult to collaborate to co-create. Build capacity for participation. And that can take time. I love the concept of, um, sorry, scaffolds for participation. Liz Sanders is one of my heroes and she talks about um, the co-design process. The role of the designer is to design scaffolds for participation. And I think it's a really great analogy when you're trying to design research activities for people who may have different abilities to what you're used to working with or different perspectives. Um, highly recommend look her up, scaffolds for participation. It's a nice frame. Um, social capital is key, and this takes time to build trust. When recruiting participants to work with 
um, introductions are really helpful. It's really, really helpful to work with partners who are trusted by your cohort. And try to involve influencers. Gaining their trust can increase trust from the broader community. So I was quite lucky I was able to work with some elders on one of these Indigenous reg regional projects and that really helped. It helped me get access and gain trust. Involve community influencers in recruitment and data gathering. I just want to add here that um, having a close relationship with somebody trusted by the community really, really helps, not just for recruitment, but along the whole process to help you translate, to help you understand if you're being appropriate and to help you really get the best um, results. It can be really, really important. And that has a lot of value for them too, because that can really help um, build confidence. And, you know, that is a sort of intervention in itself often. Always be realistic and ethical. When engaging, we need to be able to deliver on outcomes. Is your program able to deliver outcomes? If the answer is no, is it really ethical to be, to be involving people in research? Be realistic about your locus for change. And ongoing engagement. It's really great if you can establish some working groups surrounding your initiative, because change takes time and your work informs, should hopefully inform a longer term piece of work. And it should not stop with research. So bring people with lived experience along with you on the journey. Sorry, I didn't have that up there. Number seven, ethics protocol. There we go. All right, commit to ethics. They're so important. There's lots of um, borrow stuff. There's heaps of stuff on the internet. I did a quick scan as some inspiration for you. I really liked the ethical questions for design work research, or sorry, for design work by the Auckland CoLab. So within that PDF document, um, they list all of the different phases of the design process, including that kind of execution layer. And they posit um, um, questions to consider to ensure that you're being ethical. And I think it's a really great, um, a really great prompt and something to, to utilize. And there's a couple of other links there too that you could use. There's heaps of stuff online, just borrow, adapt. Okay, number eight, amplify effectively. Amplify the voices of lived experience, facilitate empathy and understanding. Your audiences, what is their understanding of the cohort and context? Build empathy as well as understanding. Paint a systems view. How can you help your audiences to better understand the system and potential places to intervene? How can you help decision makers make sense so that the right decisions are made? Use stories data, for your data gathering, for your sense making and for sharing back. Our brains are wired for story. They are memorable and meaningful. Amplify real voices. Using audio and video re recordings can be very powerful. I ran a, week, a workshop with some government people um, looking um, where we did some research with people experiencing homelessness and we created some um, audio kind of excerpts from interviews that people actually listened to and we had a lot of photos and, you know, it really, really pays to bring, bring yourself, bring your research alive, but actually to try and utilise real voices as well, not your interpretation. So Amplify for Longevity, what persuasive and useful tools might you leave behind from your research to support the design and execution phases of the initiative and support decision-making aligned with your research further down the track? Bring your research to light so that it continues to have a life and doesn't get buried somewhere on a hard drive. And consider opportunities to involve participants in communications. 
might it be possible to bring any of your participants along to meet your stakeholders? So there's eight considerations. Take a systems view, mind your mental models, accessible and appropriate, be adaptive, well-being, partners not informants, ethics protocol, amplify effectively. Power is the ability to alter the states of others. As a designer and as a researcher, you have power to change lives and support change. Don't forget that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tax. That was, that was wonderful. Um, we have a, a couple of questions. Um, the first one is uh, from uh, someone who's remaining anonymous. A service wants to create a digital product for young people who are at risk of suicide. Is it safe to conduct research with this group of people? Do you have any advice on how to do this or what should be considered? And how can the approach be adapted to ensure no harm is done? I know you covered off some of those things um, in that, but would, would you like to talk to that? Sure. I haven't had um, personal experience in, in doing that um, design. There are lots of people like Reach Out have published a whole lot of stuff um, mm. around this. So I can't really speak about that specifically, young people in mental health. But I suppose um, it's just really important. Harm minimization is always at the core. Mm. And I would involve other people in the design of the research. So as I, I sort of try to emphasize here, get partners along on the journey with you to understand what's appropriate. Um, I would partner, I would look at, I would love to reach out potentially because they have like a um, ambassador group, I think it is. And that may, may help you to access the right, the people that can help, yeah. Yeah, uh, certainly the, um, the team at Reach Out gave a talk at this conference, um, I think the year before last, about some of their techniques when engaging with young people with mental health concerns uh, and issues. And some of that includes being at risk of, of suicide. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can find the link to that talk um, and post it in the chat before the end of the day. Um, another question, add, well, sorry, Jax, yep. I just, sorry, I just add, um, I would just, I mentioned a mental health project. We actually use diary studies. So we created activities for people to do within their own time as they wanted. Hmm. So I would look down that route if I were you, look at some um, diary study kind of methods. Sorry, thanks. Okay. Um, ben has posted a question. He said that they've found when engaging with people with various kinds of lived experience, they've found that the recruiting process takes far longer than expected. Is that your experience as well? And how have you managed that? Yeah, that is the hardest part. So um, forming relationships is really important. There's also a lot of consultation fatigue that you have to get over because there's so many researchers from government and elsewhere that swoop in and ask the questions and then you know disappear into the sunset and things get nothing actually changes so it, it can be really hard so I really recommend to work with um, NGOs or you know people that work within the community to help you access participants and as I've said before like um, get data how you can it's really about building trust and make sure that um, it's not a tick box exercise and a lot of the time this type of thing is a tick box tick box exercise and I don't think that's ethical I I don't like being involved in those kinds of projects. Um, so just something to be mindful of as well. Yeah. 
Um, someone has asked the question, they're currently building an internal guide to recruit and conduct research with participants with accessibility needs. Do you have any advice on things to consider as a starting point? Um, I would look at, yeah, not particularly. I haven't, um, I haven't had to do anything like that specifically. Mm -hmm. I'm a real fan of this thing called Google and there's heaps of really great things out there. Um, when I talk about an ethics protocol, it should be appropriate to your context. So mm. I would look up accessibility guidelines. Um, yeah, sorry, that's not a really great answer. It's okay. Yeah, it's not, I'm not that formulaic in, um, yeah, Yeah. I don't have anything that formulaic. It's always different, I find, and my work's very varied as well. So, um, mm. yeah. Um, one last question for you which is, how do you feel about conducting remote research with vulnerable participants? Well, one of the challenges with this, and I'm sort of like, especially what's going on at the moment, there's technical, like, like the, for example, the project that we did um, with homelessness, it's hard, a lot of, they're not, a lot of people are not comfortable with technology. So if you are only, if you're using that as your primary mechanism, you're cutting out a lot of voices. Mm -hmm. So especially the, what's going on at the moment, I know a lot of us are going to be moving into more remote ways of working. Mm. Um, what I found with the um, homelessness project, a lot of the interfacing that, um, that, people, that um, people experiencing homeless, homelessness were doing was often at like places like St Vincent de Paul where they worked with caseworkers and they had caseworkers mediate. So I would set something like that up. I would reach out to um, St Vincent's or another NGO that have direct access. Like in Sydney, they, um, there's like um, the Matthew Talbot Hostel that's behind it. So there's a lot of um, links in and they have a computer centre there. So that might be a good place for you to potentially run this more of a mediated activity. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. We will leave it there. There are a couple of other questions that have been coming through and potentially you can um, jump in and answer yeah, those in the, in the Q&A um, for yeah. us. But thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much.